You're listening to a book with legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to a book with legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the president and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the podcast. We're going to look at the romanticization of a country and culture down to the downfall of their own monarchy and the remnants to the people that really built and, and survived that monarchy. Joining us today is Helen Rappaport to discuss her newly published book, After the Romanovs, Russian Exiles in Paris from the Belle Epoque through Revolution and War. Um, to give you a little background on Helen, uh, Helen is a Sunday Times and New York Times bestselling author including her 2017 book, Caught in the Revolution, and her 2014 title, The Romanoff Sisters. She specializes in the period of 1837 to 1918 in late imperial and revolutionary Russian and Victorian British history. She has written 14 books covering her vast knowledge of these subjects. Helen is a graduate of Leeds University in the UK. She has also received an honorary doctorate in literature from Leeds University back in 2016. Um, Helen, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for asking me. I should start by correcting you. I think um, it's now 16 books I've published. Oh, I'm, okay. I'm actually working on number <laughs> 17 as we speak. Nice. Okay, well, I, I appreciate that. Um, so now, I, you know, looking back at your writing before, um, you have obviously written a lot about this because of how, you know, what you specialize in, in history. Um, but what about this particular story, um, you know, drew you in to write this book? Um, well, it's in, an interesting thing that I, I actually got into writing about the Romanov dynasty, the last imperial family of Russia, quite by mm -hmm. accident um, back in ooh, 2007. And I'd written three books about them, three very, fairly different ones. And I thought I'd pretty much exhausted what I wanted to say. But there was one aspect of the Romanovs and of uh, the Russian intelligentsia, the aristocracy, who were all driven out in 1917, that had always intrigued me. And that was what happened to the ones who fled Russia, who, for various mm -hmm. reasons, were forced to just drop everything, leave everything they had and flee to other countries. And, of course, a lot of um, the members of the Romanov family fled in 1917. So the choice of title... Um, it, it's to do with my USP in the States, which is kind of Romanoff linked for obvious reasons. But as such, it's the book is about what happened after the Romanoffs fled or alternatively, some of them were actually murdered, of course, by the Bolsheviks. Mm -hmm. So what happened to those people after they left Russia and went into exile? Yeah, because what drew me to your book was, you know, here we have, you know, effectively a crisis going on in Russia for various reasons. Um, but it's interesting to think about wealthy people and what they're doing as the repercussions to that crisis. Um, and it's not, in, in some respects, it has kind of, you know, feelings of a regime change like the like happens in your writing. Um, at the same time, how wealthy people are treated is vastly different. And so we'll get into talking about that. I think it's very, you know, it's interesting to think about it in that context then versus today. So um, right at the beginning of the book, you start out by giving a framework for the Exodus later. Y you say, uh, by the beginning of the 20th century, Paris was fast becoming the capital of Russia, out of Russia, um, for those with obviously plenty of money. Um, what, what, what really started, um, give our readers a look into what started this interest in you know, Paris um, as, as kind of the non-Russian capital? Well, the Russians had always admired French literature. 
way back. And in fact, Catherine the Great had corresponded with famous writers like Voltaire and Diderot. So there was always a cultural interest. And of course, the most important thing about the, the Francophilia of the Russians was that the whole of the Russian aristocracy, including the royal family themselves, all spoke better French than they did Russian. French mm -hmm. was the lingua franca of the Russian court. You know, I mean, Tolstoy's War and Peace. If, you, if you've ever seen the film or read the book, they're all speaking French. So Russians, wealthy Russians, had always gone to France, but it didn't really take off until after the hostilities were over from the Crimean War, when France and Britain, of course, had fought Russia in Crimea. So in the 1860s, wealthy Russians more and more were going to Paris. It was their favourite watering hole. First of all, because it was freer and more relaxed. Russia was quite politically repressed, always was, and it was quite a strict censorship in terms of press, press freedoms and things like that. But what they really went for was the hedonism, the fine wine, dining, the Ritz, of course, was a very, very popular watering hole with the Russians. But also the fashion houses, Worth and Cartier, were, were hugely popular with very wealthy Russians right up to the war. And so they went to Paris for all the, the decadent, um, indulgent life that they could afford because some of the Russian aristocracy had enormous wealth, absolutely mm -hmm. enormous wealth. And of course, they were also going down to the south of France as well, to Nice and Cannes. But it was predominantly Paris, Belle Epoque Paris, that attracted them. So to kind of use the grandeur of what you're touching at there, um, early in the book, you introduce your readers to Grand Duke Vladimir, who, if my notes serve me right, was Nicholas II's uncle. Um, you, you point out he's the most powerful of the Grand Dukes, um, I, but he had an income from the Tsar's treasury at what would roughly be $10 million today. You know, in UK or US parlance, um, you know, he would be what we consider a baller. I mean, he was making pro athlete style money um, at that time. And uh, can you, I, I mean, you do such a great job in the book, so I, I, I don't, I want readers to get it there, but, you know, teach us what he was in Paris to the restaurants, the prostitutes, and anyone else of interest to a person like him. Grand Duke Vladimir, uh, to his credit, was also a highly cultivated man and a great patron of the art. Arts And one of the things he and other Grand Dukes, of course, did in Paris was go around the auction houses and the galleries and buy up French art, French artefacts, objets d'art, statuary, you name it, as well as, you know, their wives hanging out in the fashion houses and the jewellers. Vladimir um, also, importantly, because he was such a cultural figure in Russia, was one of the first serious patrons of Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe. And it's mm -hmm. thanks to the patronage of wealthy, very wealthy Russians, but also wealthy Americans in Paris, like uh, Winneretta Singer, the singer heiress who was living in Paris, also put money up um, to help Diaghilev get his ballet company off the ground. So a lot of them, the wealthy Russians in Paris, did you know, put their money into cultural things. It wasn't all entirely spent on oysters and champagne and whining and sure. dining with prostitutes. So um, you also point out early in your book that, you know, ro royals, uh, you know, people who were in court um, that were shunned could wake up in Paris redeemed. Um, you know, and you, you, your story talks about Grand Duke uh, Paul Alexandrovich. Um, can you teach our, our, our audience, you know, what happened to him and his wife, um, you know, to cause him to go to Paris and then what caused him to flourish in that setting? Well, Grand Duke Paul is one of my favorite figures from the book, I have to say. Of all the Grand Dukes, he seemed to me the most honorable and decent. And he, mm -hmm. unlike them, he didn't seem to have a string of mistresses. But the reason he had left Russia and he'd been very greatly loved in Russia, was that after his first wife died tragically um, quite soon after they were married, he fell for a married lady at court called Countess um, Hohenfelsen. 
Um, and because he they were uh, they had this very serious affair and produced quite quickly an illegitimate son, they weren't allowed to marry, of course, even though Paul was a widower, because there were very strict rules in the Russian court that any members of the imperial family, especially the grand dukes and duchesses, could not marry morganatically. And by mm -hmm. morganatic, I mean... Paul could not marry a woman who, who was married to someone else and who was not of royal blood. So they basically ran off abroad to live uh, together first in Italy and then they settled in Paris. Um, she was divorced by then, but they weren't allowed to marry or go back to Russia. They married um, in, in Europe. I think it was in the south of France or Italy. They got married. So they were kind of exiled purely because Nicholas II did not accept that morganatic marriage. But eventually, uh, he did forgive Paul especially and invite him back. But in the meantime, in Paris, of course, Paul had taken his massive wealth with him and they mm -hmm. had set up the most beautiful house together in the Bois de Boulogne, and as I just mentioned, they were great, like Vladimir, were great patrons of the art ha auction houses and bought up French china and statuary and paintings and furnishings, left, right and centre. And Olga, his wife, um, Countess Hohenfelsen, became legendary for forever being at Worth's buying, you know, incredibly expensive dresses there, and then popping next door to Cartier and having this fabulous jewellery collection, a lot of which was bought for her by Paul. But eventually they got tired of being living as exiles abroad. They were desperate to go back to Russia. And Paul was sort of eventually forgiven by Tsar uh, uh, Nicholas and allowed to go back. And then finally he relented because at first he wouldn't allow Olga to go back because she brought, he felt, shame on the Romanov family. Um, but they were both allowed back, and they, they had a palace built for them out at Tsarskoye Silo, spent an absolute fortune, millions, transporting most of the art and furniture and luxury items that they bought in Paris, putting, you know, crating them all up and sending them back to Russia for their palace. And of course, the awful irony is that they'd no sooner got set up at this gorgeous new palace at Tsarskoye Silo than the revolution broke and the palace mm -hmm. was nobbled, you know, it was grabbed by the Bolsheviks. Sure. So, you know, and thinking about your writing with their your relationship and their marriage, um, you know, you mentioned that Paul and Olga were horrified at the Cossack slaughtering uh, during the peaceful protests on Bloody Sunday in 1905, you, you can almost get this sense as a reader that they were hosting like a shadow court, right? It was at times not even agreement with the Russian uh, policy, but yet at the same time carried a lot of people that would visit from the Russian court. Yes, because Nicholas and Alexandra, by this time to, uh, approaching the revolution, because they had a, a hemophiliac son, Alexei, the son and heir, who they'd wanted to protect, um, they had retreated more and more from public view. O uh, mm -hmm. Olga and Paul were were great society figures, as had been Grand Duke Vladimir and his wife. Now, he died, I think it was 1909 or 1910, but his wife, who was known as Grand Duchess Vladimir, she was actually Maria Pavlovna, she kind of took over from him as the great society expatriate Russian society figure in Paris and her diamonds were even bigger and better, you know, than um, than Olga's. So um, mm -hmm. there, there was a kind of, I wouldn't say a rival court, but the Grand Dukes certainly had their following because Nicholas and Alexandra lived such modest, quiet family lives, weren't ostentatious. Okay, Nicholas would take his children to the theatre or the opera occasionally, but Alexandra was pretty much a recluse. Hmm. Interesting. So, so back to um, 
you know, the, you mentioned earlier about the, the Russians and these luxury boutiques and brands that they were frequenting. Names that come up in your, in your writing, Cartier, Guerlain, Chanel. Um, and this sounds just like wealthy people, you know, kind of post-pandemic spending today. Does it, does it not have just rhymes of that? Well, it's very interesting because Chanel, of course, was very shrewd and quickly saw um, uh, how interesting and how she could how interesting Russian Slavic design was, and it was she who first introduced and, in fact, almost fed this great fad for Slavic type design and um, embroidery in her early collections in the 20s. So she was inspired. But of course, other another thing that all the Russians inspired in terms of fashion and quality furnishings, fabrics, you name it, was of course the Ballet Russe and mm -hmm. especially the designs of Leon Baxt. His incredible costume designs were picked up by many French designers, uh, and 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 you see that a really powerful influence across French fashion, art, and design in that 1900s period, directly inspired by the the Ballet Russe, Diaghilev, and the Ballet Russe. Well, we're going to come back to that. Um, one tidbit that I loved in your book, and this is like one of those great little uh, kernels. Um, you have a small uh, part in your book where you intimate that the Chanel number no. five bottle was actually modeled after a Ru Russian officer's flask. Um, it, how, how much credence do you put to this? Well, I do actually put quite a fair bit of credence to that because the first thing you will find if you start Googling on the web about uh, Coco Chanel and her affair with Grand mm -hmm. Duke Dmitry Pavlev Pavlovich, who was the son of Grand Duke Paul, we'd just been talking about. He was his son by his first wife, who died young. Um, mm -hmm. Chanel was introduced to um, Dmitry when he arrived in Paris, utterly broken, penniless, in about 1921. But of course, he had that got wonderful good looks, matinee idol good looks and charm. And so he swanned around Paris, uh, allowing everyone to buy him dinner at the Ritz and God knows where. Well, Chanel was totally beguiled by him. And she mm -hmm. was just at the beginning of her career and they had very quickly started having an affair. And it's always been claimed, as I said, if you go on the web and search, all over the web it says that Dimitri gave her the idea of Chanel number no. five. No, he didn't. Uh, Chanel had already been talking about producing her own name brand perfume a year or so before um, she met Dimitri. She'd been down to Grasse, which is the centre of the per French perfume industry. Um, she'd been down to Grasse and talked to perfumiers there. But when she met Dimitri, the, the bit of the story that I think is right is that he actually sketched a, a, an image for her of that sort of military-style flask that all Russian officers carried. And he'd been, obviously, in the Russian military uh, in his mm -hmm. younger days in Russia. So I think it's more than likely that Dmitry certainly gave her the idea for the shape of that bottle. But he didn't, he, you know, he didn't help her invent Chanel Number no. 5, the actual perfume. Sure. You had mentioned this a few minutes ago. Russian literature had been, you know, around Paris um, for quite a long time, um, and, and vice versa. You know, uh, French literature in Russia, but music and, and art hadn't yet come from Russia to Paris. Um, then comes along the colorful, you know, Sergei uh, Diaghilev. Um, teach our listeners about him as this kind of cultural ambassador coming to Paris. Well, the wonderful thing that Diaghilev did was that he brought, till then, almost unknown Russian music and Russian art, indigenous Russian art, to the Western world. Because Russian music beyond, at the time, say, Tchaikovsky and one or two of the more famous composers was little known, really, outside Russia. I mean, uh, and, and, of course, Diaghilev brought his astonishing protégé, um, Stravinsky, uh, into the public eye in Paris. And it was Stravinsky who, of course, kicked off a whole new school 
of stunning and exciting modernist music. So Diaghilev had 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 the idea in the early 1900s to introduce Russian art to Paris by borrowing a, an awful lot of pictures from all over Russian museums and collections with the help of Grand Duke Vladimir, by the way, and to stage an ex big exhibition in Paris of Russian art. Well, people in Paris had not seen this art, really had not seen it. And so the music and the design and everything else fed into that when he, you know, a, a few years later, he came back with the Ballet Russe. So the 1909 Saison Russe uh, brought Russian ballet. You wrote that their ballet programs were to be, quote, nothing short of revolutions in art, end quote. Um, what were the main departures from traditional ballet? Well, the really important thing, and I'm not a ballet specialist, so I can't go into mm -hmm. the finer points. The really big difference about the Russian ballet is, first of all, it was no more dainty little um, dancers in tutus um, dancing around on points, looking pretty, pretty, and not mm -hmm. doing anything terribly physical. What was so astonishing about the ballet russe was the physicality of it and that you see female dancers not dancing in the traditional ballet frocks and tutus. And if you think of the Rite of Spring, which really was the most astonishing moment in modern ballet music, you name it, uh, for, for that ballet, they never danced on points at all. They were pounding their feet and dancing flat-footed and making all these awkward angles with their arms and their knees. It was a complete overturning of every convention, not just of the traditional ballet, um, but also of music and, and, and theatre's design. It turned everything on its head. So uh, Vaslav Nijinsky uh, causes, to your point, uh, in your, in your, as you write in your book, quote, psychosis, a mass delirium, end quote, among these Parisian crowds. Um, despite this popularity and this excitement around the ballet and its music and its style, uh, uh, you point out that, that this loses money. I think it loses, you say, is the equivalent of about a half a million uh, dollars uh, in today's terms. Um, so you got wealthy people, you have mass hysteria. I couldn't figure out how you lose money. I just did he just not charge enough? It's astonishing, but he did constantly lose money. He he said I think towards the end of his life he was asked about that that he'd never made any money from Ballet Russe because you've got to remember when he arrived in Paris, he brought this enormous company of dancers with him. I'm not sure exactly how many, 20, 30, plus all the musicians. They had to, you know, be fed and accommodated and paid, plus all the scenery design, the costume design. It was very, very expensive running a company like that. Uh, and in the end, he quite quickly realised that he couldn't limit himself to Paris. And he rather um, sensibly took them off to Monte Carlo for a few mm -hmm. seasons where they could make a lot of money. And then he took them to London. And then I think eventually he did bring Ballyroos to America. I can't remember now. But essentially, no, he, so much money was spent achieving this incredible high standard of art and design and musicality and dance that he never really got well, wealthy on the back of it, most certainly not. So the Ballet Russe brings in all these Russian ballerinas and they end up becoming what I'll call the uber chic look. Um, as you point out in your book, they were demanded as models for the Parisian fashion houses and uh, you know, a lot of this was incorporated into styles. Um, was it just like classic fashion? It was something fresh, it was something new, it was something that hadn't been seen that drew, drove this high interest in, you know, call it art and fashion? Well, it's very interesting in terms of the the, the French um, love affair with the Russian mannequins because a lot of the people who fled to Paris after the revolution, the, they, were, they were aristocrats or from the, you know, the less aristocracy. They were tall, they were slender, they were beautiful. The French fashion houses couldn't get enough of these lovely Russian women. And of course the dancers too, those who eventually were left behind after 
ballet russe moved on, quite a few of them ended up teaching ballet or running ballet schools or, or working for the fashion houses as mannequins. And interestingly, I think you probably noticed in the book, I, I talk about how Zelda Fitzgerald had mm -hmm. lessons with a, ballet, a former ballerina of the Ballet Russe um, for a while. So there, there was a tremendous community of dancers left in Paris, in dancers and performers who, who stayed on in Paris after Ballet Russe had moved on. So you also um, talk about in the book how a lot of uh, Paris held the political rivals of the future too. Um, you note in there that Lenin was in Paris from 1909 to 1912. Um, other, you know, even outside the political realm, Hemingway was there in Paris. Um, you know, he was there in all the Bohemian uh, hangouts and, and uh, cafes and restaurants you, you talk about. Was Paris just not kind of tinder waiting to be lit for various reasons? In what way? You mean politically po revolutionary? Politi politically, culturally. Um, in other words, you had all these um, minds that were going to dominate the following 20 years of culture and politics, um, and they were all hanging around in similar neighborhoods in Paris. Well, they were all hanging out there, but they weren't there to make revolution in Paris. They were there to sure. plot revolution and change and go back to their own countries as subversives. That's certainly mm -hmm. why Lenin went to Paris. Um, in fact, he spent 16 years in exile because he couldn't operate um, as a revolutionary or as an activist in Russia without the constant threat of arrest or worse, being hung. So a lot of political exiles ended up in Paris, and especially the Russians who spent all day sitting in cafes with no money, making one cup of coffee last for hours and arguing endlessly about politics, life and the universe. So it was it was a very, it was a real hotbed of thought and intellect and interchange of ideas because you've not just got the political figures, you've got the poets, the writers who left Russia and the mm -hmm. artists also. And they were all hanging around in Mont Montmartre and in and around that area exchanging ideas and all living in utter poverty. Was World War I the real turning point in the European monarchies and the Romanov dynasty? In other words, was that, was that the tipping point that would change things forever long before, obviously, um, you know, uh, they were deposed? Well, that was the final catalyst. I think most of the monarchies, uh, many of the monarchies, certainly the Russian one, had been in serious trouble prior to that. And many of the aristocracy, including Grand Duke Paul and his wife, had been saying since 1905, uh, you know, we're on the edge of the precipice. It's all going to go down sooner or later. And many of them, mm -hmm. like Paul and Olga, felt doomed. They felt their class was doomed, which is why so many of them fled. But, of course, when war broke out in 1914, um, a lot of the Russian em emigres in Paris actually volunteered for the war effort and, and volunteer for the French army and had a pretty rough time of it. Um, so the real sea change, though, didn't come until 1917 when a lot of the political exiles obviously went back to Russia and the aristocracy and the people that they wanted rid of were all coming in the opposite direction out of Russia. So to your point, 1917 comes along, uh, Nicholas II abdicates the throne, Lenin, you know, opportunistically heads back to Petrograd, you know, St. Petersburg, um, as you wrote, quote, eager to capitalize, end quote. Why, why would, I mean, the incentive structures, we always think about incentive structures and what's in your interest and what's my interest, we're usually going to be selfish. And I just don't see how it was in the best interest of Nicholas to abdicate because didn't that just leave this vacuum that had to be filled and someone is going to fill it? Well, Nicholas was first and foremost a, a deeply committed patriot and a Christian. And mm -hmm. he was wrongly advised. I think more and more people now are taking a slightly revisionist line on the abdication and feel that he was pressurised into abdicating for the sake of Russia. He was... Um, made to feel that 
removing himself and removing the whole conflict about the monarchy and the corruption of the Romanov family and everything, taking himself out of the equation would also help rally morale. The real problem was that Russia was losing hemorrhaging troops on the Eastern Front in World War One, And mm -hmm. th there was a high rate of desertion and demoralization. And the pressure was on Nicholas to try and boost the army, bring every Russia together behind the army and the war effort. And he was made to feel that, well, if he abdicated, because there was so, so much hatred for the Russian monarchy, things might be turned around. So, yes, maybe he... I don't know that he really thought about the vacuum that would be left behind, because, of course, initially, uh, the minute he abdicated for himself and for his haemophiliac son... Um, his brother was offered the mm -hmm. throne and, and immediately said, thank you very much. I don't want the po poison chalice. So exactly. the, problem was, the problem was that everyone invested hopes in this provisional government that was set up, which was a, a real mishmash of various elements, liberal, old landowning classes, members of the state, Dumas. Um, and they couldn't, they just couldn't, pull together and, and create a united front. And that's where, um, within six months, the whole collapse of Russia really happened because the Bolsheviks, who were highly organised and extremely focused on seizing power, did just that. But it was almost by default because the provisional government had been so weak and so disorganised. But meanwhile, Nicholas who was being held under house arrest in Siberia, um, became more and more disillusioned with what had happened after he abdicated and realised that he'd actually done the wrong thing and that he shouldn't have done that, that he should not have abdicated because the thing that most appalled Nicholas and Alexandra was when the Bolsheviks no sooner seized power than sold out to the Germans and pulled Russia out mm. of the war. And that broke Nicholas's heart because he was an honourable man and he supported the Allied effort. And uh, from there on, it really was, it kind of, it, 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 it foretold what would happen to him and Alexandra because there is no way they would ever have accepted any help from the Kaiser in terms of getting out of Russia and saving their skins. Well, and I think about, you know, so this is a big family structure we're talking about. So obviously, like you mentioned, here's Nicholas and his wife, and then you have his brothers, and then you have their sons and daughters. And I mean, in today's day and age, I think, you know, I think a lot about how, you know, again, incentives drive people to do things. And, you know, there had to be a nephew that calls up and says, what are you doing? I'm going to have to go get a job. I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like they were giving up such wealth at the same time. You, you know, you spoke a lot about the politics, but um, as you do a really good job in the later parts of your book, the, the economic devastation that this causes to the aristocracy and in the royal family um, was, was no one willing to say anything for that. Well, they were all they were all either on under house arrest, or had been murdered, or had been driven out. And in fact, the the irony is that prior to the revolution, for se some time, several months, if not a couple of years, there had been increasing dissent within the Romanov family itself about the the the, the state of the monarchy and the way in which Nicholas and Alexandra were governing. And that I think that if the revolution hadn't happened in February, that initial people's uprising and protest, that sooner or later the Romanov family actually were plotting uh, to remove Nicholas and Alexandra, or, or certainly her, because they hated Alexandra so much. So I, there was a lot of dislike, particularly of Alexandra, within the Romanov family. I mean... They hated her so much and wanted rid of her because they felt she, in particular, was bringing the monarchy into disrepute. So there were enemies on all sides for Nicholas. And, and it's a shame because he was a decent, God-fearing, well-intentioned, kind man, a good father, but so blinkered, so stubborn, 
about allowing any change or reform into Russia that might have averted revolution. Yeah, in some respects, and, and obviously your book doesn't go into this, but you know it, it touches at Catherine the Great, and obviously Catherine was in some ways the opposite uh, of him. Um, Paul and Olga, you know, continue to be these central characters. He goes back to serve in the army. Uh, I think uh, as as early as 1915, they were telling the French diplomat that Nicholas II was, you know, in disarray, had already been marked down. Um, why weren't they getting ready to abandon ship? In other words, they knew there was real trouble brewing, but yet at the same time, at no point do they say, you know, we're going to get out, we're going to leave, and we're going to never go back. Well, there is this astonishing, and it's astonishing, there is this thing about the Russians that I find quite profound at that time and always is incredible sense of the mother country and patriotism. Mm-hmm. Um, the only... You know, when the revolution came, uh, some of them were very quickly rounded up, but most of them tried to stay for a while at least because they couldn't believe that the whole of Russia was going to go into free fall. And so Paul, unfortunately, people were beg- actually uh, begging him to go, go to safety. And I think at one point, just before his arrest in 1918, he had looked into the possibility of going out to Finland and, and back to Paris because they kept the house in the Bois de Boulogne all this time. But unfortunately, he was arrested before he could do so. And some of the other Grand Dukes were arrested, of course. And um, Paul was then held by the Bolsheviks until the following um, January of 1919 when he and three other Grand Dukes were all taken out and shot. But Olga, Olga got away and she went back to Paris in greatly reduced circumstances, of course, later, went back to the empty house and um, had to sell it. And like all the aristocracy, she very quickly ran through her her collection of jewellery because they were all pawning their jewels left, right and centre just to survive. So, you know, coming off World War One, there were quite a few monarchies that were selling jewels into, I'll call it the luxury jewel market, um, at all at the same time, while, to your point, the Romanovs are doing the same. Well, it wasn't so much the monarchies themselves. I mean, uh, the Russian, a lot of the Russian crown jewels, in fact, were later flogged by the Bolsheviks to raise money to to promote their new uh, industrialised and, and, and economic programmes. But uh, a lot of dispossessed aristocrats were driven out or lost their homes during the war in Europe. And and the, the, the sad thing is that there were so many of them flogging off the family jewels that it totally depreciated the value of all those jewels. I mean, the Russian aristocracy had the most fabulous jewels. Fantastic jewels, like Grand Duchess Vladimir in particular. She was remarked upon going to watch Diaghilev performances with all her diamonds glittering and blinding everyone. So all the they all went into exile thinking, oh, all our jewels are going to last for years. We'll live off them bit by bit. Even Prince Felix Yusupov who had these fabulous Romanov pearls and a couple of Rembrandts and God knows what other jewels, um, found that they very quickly went ran through the money raised on them because the whole value of all this jewellery um, had completely collapsed. While I was reading the book, I couldn't help but think of what was going on, you know, currently with, um, you know, I'll call it Russian oligarchs, but very you know, wealthy uh, billionaires uh, that are obviously tied uh, to Russia more directly. Um, And we're, you know, here we are reading in Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal and various publications about these yacht sales going on. Um, And obviously there's only so much money that can purchase those kind of assets. And and not dissimilar to what you explained about the jewels, they're going to go off at depressed prices, even compared to what was paid a year or two years ago. Um, and, And kind of the rhymes of that, um, are astounding. But the one thing I think is different, um, obviously the Bolsheviks were forcing these sales. Okay. Right. So you had a, I'll call it a socialist or, you know, sooner or later communist government, but in some cases I'll call it a dictator 
forcing the sale of these assets or the, you know, the, the seizure of these assets. And, and interestingly, Helen, that's not what's going on today. It's not, you know, uh, it's not communist or socialist governments doing it. It's democracies are forcing the sale of these assets. Well, it wasn't so much that the Soviets were forcing them. They'd, they'd, they'd taken them. They confiscated everything. They confiscated all the crown jewels, and a lot of uh, 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 precious stuff was simply melted down or broken up. I mean, there are terrible stories about the number of very precious icons taken from the Russian churches in their fantastic golden silver cladding, often very heavily bejeweled as well. Many of those were simply broken up, and, and, and the gold and silver was you know, melted down. Um, but the, the most pricey stuff was actually traded, officially traded by the Soviets through its own kind of uh, antiques um, department that actually operated through the auction houses in London and elsewhere. And one of the sad things was that um, in exile, of course, Olga, Paul's wife, Olga, the widow, heard that her own stuff was up for sale in London and protested, mm. but she could do nothing. It had all, I mean, when, when she and Paul left, when their, when their home at Zanskyselo was repossessed by, uh, by the Bolsheviks, um, they kept all the furniture and all everything that was in it, distributed it around various um, uh, Bolshevik um, institutions and places, but a vast amount of it was simply sold off. And, and can you imagine how mortifying it was for her to discover that paintings and pieces of jewellery or tapestries or furniture that she'd so carefully collected in Paris before the war were now being sold off by the Soviets? Mm. So you just mentioned this. Paul is executed with three other Grand Dukes, Nikolai, uh, Georgi, and Dmitri, just outside of the Peter and Paul Cathedral, which is interesting because that's where they'd be buried, obviously, as, as um, royals. Paul's daughter, Maria, learns of her father's execution. Um, uh, I think she's, let's see, she's at the Cotrasini Palace in Romania, and she learns of that via King George in London. These families um, had such strong, you know, bloodline ties. Is this just like family gossip, uh, you know, going as these people are obviously leaving and extricating themselves from Russia? Um, isn't it just kind of like family gossip? Oh, we heard. Um, no, no, no. I mean, the, you've got to remember that the royal families of really Western Europe were very incestuously closely related. Mm -hmm. in, there were in, intense family ties and they had their own information network. And when people fled Russia, they had to get news by whatever means they could. And in sure. the terms, in the sense of uh, King George, um, King George V, he would have had, you know, they had networks of agents and diplomats in Europe who passed on reports and information. Maria Pavlovna is very interesting because she was the sister of Grand Duke Dmitri, who had the affair with Chanel. And she was probably the most enterprising and successful of all the female exiles, the aristocratic exiles in Paris, because she was the one who was snapped up by Chanel. Um, Dmitri introduced her to Chanel because she was very good at embroidery. And she started producing all this lovely Slavic style embroidery that Chanel went on to incorporate in her early fashion collections. So Maria Pavlovna was shrewd and, and worked hard. That's the thing. She wasn't frightened of working hard. A lot of these Russian aristocratic women, you know, worked very long hours in the ateliers, in the fashion trade, sewing. But they at least made a living, whereas the men often couldn't make any money except driving taxis. As the people um, tied to the Tsar are leaving Russia, the whites are still attempting to fight the reds um, with Odessa, ultimately is the escape route, as you point out in your book. Um, was there really a chance of hope of the whites overtaking the reds, or was it just fighting back to your point earlier? And I think this is a, a very central theme of your writing of the Russian people. Was it really just them fighting for honor of the motherland and, and fearing what could come you know, next being the worst thing for that motherland? 
Yes, very much so. The white, sadly, it's a loose term applied to a very disparate group of people. Basically, mm -hmm. they, they were the anti-Bolsheviks. Some of them, the white Russians from white Russia, European Russia. But there were also many people who were not monarchists, who were actually socialists even, or anarchists, all sorts of people who hated the Bolsheviks and fought against them. It's a bit of a misnomer to think that the counter-revolutionary forces all wanted to put the Tsar back on the throne. They didn't. They just wanted to defeat the Bolsheviks because they loved Russia and they were horrified at what might happen. Uh, you know, if if the Bolsheviks became entrenched. But it, by the autumn of uh, 1918, the cause was fading. The whites really couldn't organise enough of a, a powerful counter-revolution. And they carried on, you know, in part, mainly in, in Siberia and in, in the east of Russia, in these pockets of resistance, but slowly but surely, they were they were driven into a part of what is now, of course, Ukraine, and driven south down to the Black Sea and Crimea, from where an enormous mass evacuation took place um, in 1920. Um, and it was really tragic to see the remnants of a once great... Uh, cultural group and army uh, driven into such desperate measures to get out of Russia because they had to leave with nothing. Your book highlights one of the first Russian intellectual elites to escape to Paris was uh, Nadezhda Lukitskaya. I've got to say this again. Lukitskaya. She left Crimea for Constantinople. To quote her in your book, and I love this quote. This is absolutely fantastic. Um, she says, quote, or you, you write, quote, and like Lot's wife, or she, this is her saying it, pardon me, um, quote, and like Lot's wife, I am frozen. I have turned into a pillar of salt forever, and I shall forever go on looking, seeing my own land slip softly, slowly away from me, end quote. Helen, this is a statement of biblical proportion, and back to our theme of, the, you know, kind of the mental plight of Russians uh, who had to leave their homeland um, and kind of pick up the pieces after that, but, but wasn't this exodus biblical in its size and scale, to your point a second ago? I think it was the biggest exodus, really, compared to the, the exodus of Jews in, at the end of World War II to Israel, wasn't it? Um, it was absolutely biblical, and many of them never, ever got over the trauma of being forced from Russia. Uh, it, it, it's really very sad when you look at the vast majority of exiles in Paris in the 20s and 30s who were terribly impoverished because hardly any of them had brought anything out with them except the aristocrats who'd managed to salvage a few of their jewels. They lived in dreadful poverty, constantly, constantly longing to go back to the motherland. And, of course, the thing you have to understand with this Russian longing, and it is a very powerful and profound sense of longing, is that the motherland was one thing to Russians, you know, the spiritual, cultural, emotional sense of motherland was quite separate from the state, the Russian mm -hmm. state. Um, and there was a very clear division. They, they had no loyalty to the, the old, even many had no loyalty to the old corrupt Tsarist state, let alone the new Soviet state. But they had this intense and very, very deep loyalty and love of the motherland, of the Rodina, as they called it, you know, the soil. You talk uh, about the ship in your book, the Rio Negro, going out to sea with 1,400 refugees on board. I found this incredibly interesting because obviously the ship was never made to carry that that number of people. Um, the, the, you know, I, my brain thinks in allegories all the time. And so when I was reading this, I actually thought of the movie Dunkirk, which has a scene, um, you know, where very much like that overcrowded ships are leaving port from Dunkirk. Um, uh, is this what Rio Negro would have looked like? Well, it was a British destroyer, a transport ship, actually, not a destroyer. But this image, when you, when, you, you, when you try and conceive of this image of 
every possible kind of boat was commandeered to, to, to evacuate the remnants of the White Army, as well as thousands and thousands of civilians who had fled following in their train. Um, mm -hmm. People were put on the most um, insubstantial vessels. You know, they weren't equipped to take human cargo, as it were. So not quite to the level of the little fishing boats of Dunkirk. But yes, one can draw an analogy there. Hemingway said that the Russians that were drifting uh, along in Paris um, did that with like a childish hopelessness. Um, that could be said for the men in particular. I think your book does a great job of explaining how women had really, you know, picked themselves up by their bootstraps um, to go out and do what they needed to do. And the men were kind of adrift in hopelessness. Um, uh, we, you just talked about Maria, yeah, drinking too much. Um, you know, so some of the stereotype holds true. But Maria, like you pointed out, created her own luxury brand after working, you know, with, with Chanel. Uh, her brand, was, you, you mentioned, was called Kitmer. Um, how successful was this enterprise for her as this entrepreneurial female post, you know, the dynasty? Well, Maria Pavlovna, as I've already said, of all the Russian aristocrats who went into the fashion trade, and quite a few of them did, was the most successful. And the, the miracle is that you have all these very wealthy, very privileged Russian women from the aristocracy ending up in Paris, who'd all, all been very well-bred, educated at home with governesses. But they had one skill in common that they could use to get work. And that was that they'd been taught to sew. And they, many of them were very good needlewomen. So a lot of them set up fashion firms. Uh, there were several other um, people I name in the book who, and they all for a while were pretty successful. But of course, by the time of the economic downturn of the early 30s, Luxury fashion goods, you, you know, were not the priority of people who had less money sure. in their pocket with galloping inflation and, and economic crisis. So um, the sad thing is but that by the 30s, a lot of the fashion houses were closed down by the Great Depression. Maria Pavlina gave up and went to America and she worked for Bergdorf Goodman for a while and did OK. But... Um, the really difficult thing for the men was that many of the men in the emigration had come straight from the military. And the only mm -hmm. real skill they had were technical, like fixing things, perhaps fixing cars or driving cars. And so that's why a lot of the Russian male emigres ended up driving taxis around Paris or working as chauffeurs or in garages. A huge number of the poorer emigre uh, men ended up working in the massive Renault factory in Paris. So I, I, this Renault part, I think, was really interesting. You point out in your book that they were getting paid effectively two U.S. dollars per day, while at the same time in America, a Ford worker was making $5 a day was this, this purely tied to the imbalance of available labor in Paris from these, you know, these, the immigration that had taken place? Was it just too many workers um, and not enough jobs, and that's why they could pay them so little? I think so. I think so, and also because there was more fairness in terms of wages working probably for Ford than working for Renault in Paris. There were so many Russians desperate for work in that period, and... Renault, um, I, I wonder. I sometimes wonder how the Renault factory would have fared without the Russian workers, Renault and Citroen. Yeah, that, when I was reading your book, I thought to myself, gosh, I'd love to be the owner of Renault during this time where, yeah, not all is well on the economic front, but, but it's easy to keep your costs low. Um, so, so then Russia, uh, Russia begins executing clandestine operations in Paris against any possible instigators. And, and this is really interesting as you think about kind of international politics and, you know, military operations. One of those was General Alexander uh, Kutupov, um, who had been Wrangel's second command in the White Army. He had moved from Siberia in, in 1924 to Paris. He built an intelligence group in Paris. They ran operations in Russia, but Russia came after them. Uh, explain to our listeners what happened to Kutupov and other agitators in Paris like him. Well, this is a bit of a long, complicated one. I don't want to get too bogged down with it. Um, basically, um, it, 
once they were in Paris, a lot of the former white army uh, officers were not were desperate to see Bolshevism fall, to see Lenin's new government collapse. And many of them just sort of sat there on their hands, hoping it would all just collapse without them doing anything. But others actively plotted to try and undermine the new Soviet regime in Russia. Not very successfully, I have to say. But on the other side of the coin, the Russians equally, the Soviets equally, were well aware that the white army uh, in exile was a threat to them. Not that they could have actually all gathered themselves together and stormed across Europe and into Russia and seized power, but they were trying to infiltrate and with acts of sabotage and assassination. So what the Soviets did in retaliation was send in agents and uh, agents provocateurs who infiltrated the white Russian community in Paris and had successfully twice ca captured, kidnapped two top white generals, one General Kuchopov and the other one General Miller. And the objective was to take them back to, um, to Russia, to the Soviet Union, to, to grill them and torture them and probably then just kill them. But in fact, when they seized Kuchopov on the streets of Paris, they didn't even get that far because they drugged him uh, to get him uh, away in secret onto a boat and back to Russia. And I think, apparently, well, we don't know for sure, but they think he was accidentally given an overdose and he died. But when General Miller was kidnapped on, again on the streets of Paris in 1939, he was got back to, to, to the, you know, the secret police in Russia and tortured and then shot. But as such, mm. uh, attempts by the white Russians were pretty lukewarm in terms of having any effective impact on in Soviet Russia. It was too far away. It was too difficult to get people in there uh, to to get on uh, to conduct subversive activities. It was kind of a romantic hope that they could somehow or other undermine the Soviet system, and all the time the whites held on to this hope. Um, people thought things could be better in Russia, but of course hopes faded increasingly during the 1930s. Uh, Helen, let's pivot to literature because this is kind of later in the book. And, you know, Boonin, he, he, he wins the Nobel Prize in literature in 1933, okay? Um, you note that he gave a quarter of his winnings to other artists. And this had been kind of like, a, 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 you know, no Russian had ever won this award. Was this a way for, call it the political, um, the global political community and the global intellectual community to finally kind of give something to, um, you know, Russians that, you know, were no longer in Russia? Was there a way of kind of recognizing the importance of these people or was it really just about his writing? I think it was a hugely significant moment for the Russian literary community in exile um, because... They had had the most desperate struggle to earn a living or, or gain any recognition or have their work published except in very minor journals and, and emigre newspapers. And yeah. Ivan Bunin in Russia before the revolution had had a huge profile, a, a massive following. He was an enormous, enormously respected and popular Russian writer. And the tragedy for him and for so many of the writers who left, but particularly Bunin, was that all that fame and the, the, the huge readership he had was completely lost to him when he fled Russia. And even Bunin struggled to make a living through his long years in, in France, living in France. Obviously, he did at least um, go and spend time in the south of France for, for part of his um, uh, exile. But it was very, very hard for them to rebuild anything approaching the kind of readership they'd had in a country as vast as Russia. And Bunin's symbolic award of the Nobel Prize in, for literature in 1933 was hugely important to the, as a morale booster for the Russian mm. emigre community. It made, made them feel that at last one of their own had been given the credit due 
but it had been quite a battle for him to be given the, the award. People had been lobbying for him to be given it for several years before he finally did win it. And, of course, the money he won, uh, there were so many needy people around him, hangers-on, other writers, friends, relatives, you name it, that once the money was shared out and he paid a few debts, he was very soon complaining again that he had nothing to live on. So he it didn't make him a wealthy man. Mm. And you noted that like Tolstoy and Chekhov never won that award. Um, you know, and so that was a big deal for the community at large. Um, and also plays back at that idea that, that we touched on earlier, kind of like, like Hemingway said, it was a, a childish hopelessness where even if things go right, sooner or later they're going to go wrong again. And, it, and, I, and the question I always ask myself is, you know, as I was getting towards the end of your book, I was saying, you know, um, the devil that you know is the better than the one you don't, right? Or, or like in biblical proportions, well, you, get you, know, this... you could take a demon, demon out of something, but it, it could end up with seven demons. I, I, I was just going to say that you get this sense, and, and I got it so strongly from all the reading I did uh, about the emigration, of this overwhelming feeling of melancholy, of loss, that they could never adjust to, they could never get over it. Hardly any of the emigres really and truly had happy, successful lives in emigration. Obviously, some of them, you know, they had their families around them, their little communities, particularly all the Renault, Renault workers who worked, lived and worked up at Billancourt, which was a suburb. But many of the Russians in Paris just lived with this terrible, gnawing longing for what they'd lost. And it was made worse by the fact that they didn't really integrate or, um, or learn French or become, become French citizens. Not many of them took citizenships. Uh, and, and the ones who did tended to do better. The ones who's, particularly if they're, ch they're children, the next generation grew up learning and speaking French and, and became, you know, um, became assimilated into the French nation. But the older generation of Russians kept kept very much to their cultural traditions. They went to the Russian church on Rue d'Arude. They spoke Russian. They went to Russian shops. They moved in their own fairly closed Russian community. And because of that, uh, they, they never seemed to be able to get out of this perpetual sense of longing for the old Russia that they'd had to leave. Agree. And, and the storytelling you did in that part of your book, um, you know, talking about how their children really, you know, thought of themselves as more French than Russian, which was just such a, a, a huge um, difference from the prior generation. When people emigrate, it's often the older generation who cling to their old former national uh, ways, whereas the children tend to assimilate much more rapidly and learn the language. Yeah, I think the, the numbers that hold, and I think um, this has been proven through quite a few studies, the first generation will retain their native tongue the second generation will know a little bit of it, but not retain the native tongue. And the third generation won't know the native tongue at all. And so to your point, I mean, that, that mold holds true in your writing as well. Um, you, you've taken me, Helen, from being someone who had always kind of had a curiosity of late 19th century, early 20th century monarchies and wealth and what those groups did at the time. And your writing on the, the Romanovs just completely blew my mind for how many things have bled through to today in like these brands and what wealthy people like to do, et cetera. Um, so I could probably go on with you for another hour and I would enjoy myself the entire time. Um, but what is there anything that we haven't talked about in your writing that you think needs to be mentioned um, in our discussion today? No, but I would just, uh, I mean, in terms of, I know your interest is in money and wealth and how, how they, you know, tried to trade their valuables. But one little anecdote, and, and it relates to the emigration in London, because quite a few Russians came to London. And uh, many years ago now, I went to see one of them. She was top drawer Russian aristocracy from a very, very eminent Russian um, aristocratic family. And she told me about the early days when they, they when they settled in London, because there was quite a community of them around the King's Road and in Kensington that way. And she said it was so awful seeing all these 
people she knew having to sell off their Fabergé. And she said they would take, bit by bit, they would take their pieces of Fabergé jewellery or even Fabergé eggs, because quite a lot of them, of course, have been lost. We, you know, quite a few of them are, are missing. And she said she remembers people taking their bits of Fabergé and selling them to Wartskis in off Bond Street for a song. You know, the stuff that now... Um, Fabergé is so highly sought after, so, so uh, incredibly expensive to buy and collect. And yet in those days, in the 20s, if you'd been in London or Paris, you could have picked up the most gorgeous pieces of Fabergé for a song. I found that fascinating as well, Helen. Um, like I said earlier, we could go on talking about this for quite a long time and, and just the the subject of, you know, again, like you pointed out, thinking about wealthy people and money and, and how that is affected. I also, you know, I also thought a lot about network structures because obviously the Romanovs were the central, you know, node in a network structure. And as soon as they were removed in that network, obviously, like you pointed out, the disparate interests came to light and the network had to reorient itself around something vastly different. Um, for our listeners, um, you have to go buy a copy of Helen's book, After the Romanovs. Um, again, I walked into it not knowing much about it other than just being you know, aware of it via uh, you know, much of you know, Nicholas II's family um, and Rasputin and all those other characters. But um, I have a much deeper appreciation for the royal family, for the aristocracy around them, for the court, for the rules around that court, um, and also how it's affected luxury brands to today. Um, if you have a great book like Helen's uh, that you'd like to recommend for the podcast, um, email podcast at smeadcap.com. That's podcast at smeadcap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at smeadcap. Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.